Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you on the podcast, too. We've had uh, been blessed by uh, having uh, Rabbi Stoller here and also by Rabbi Arya Israel, that was uh, the emeritus uh, rabbi. Uh, but now we have the cantor. And just for those uh, who may not be familiar with what a cantor does, um, could you just tell us a little bit about what you do for Temple Israel? Sure. So I like to say that I'm like a rabbi and that I'm ordained clergy and I'm in charge of the musical life of the synagogue. But I do many of the same things rabbis do. I teach, I do funerals, I visit people in the hospital, life cycle events, and I'm also in charge of the music for worship, for our students, for B'nai Mitzvah program, all of the musical parts of synagogue. That's awesome. I, I think of uh, there was a saint in the Christian tradition named St. Augustine who said, when you sing, you pray twice. So maybe you could say... Uh, you're part of the, you're part over the musical and spiritual life of the congregation. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, if you if you care to answer in song today, um, you could do that as well. Um, but uh, uh, we're looking at a parable, uh, the parable of the budding fig tree. This is in appears in Matthew 24, verses 32 through 35. Um, by the way, if you're really wanting extra credit and want to look up these things, it, it also a parallel um, telling of this parable. It comes in. Uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, verses 28 through 33. Um, <clears throat> we're using Matthew's version here. And Jesus says, Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. The background of that is Jesus kind of rehearses a bunch of kind of tragic things that, that um, he sees coming, which many Christians have associated with like some sort of apocalyptic end, but seems pretty assured that he was sensing the signs of the times a lot closer to him, um, that he was seeing the um, these, these kind of uh, messianic movements rise up with people saying, hey, it's time to get behind me and revolt against Rome and um, and was concerned about that and saw where these th kinds of things were headed. And the, I think he what what he was seeing in this is the the what eventually became the fall of Rome in 70 um, CE uh, when the Romans finally said enough of this and they came and um, destroyed uh, Jerusalem and the temple and so forth. And so the, if you read back the, the further in the book of Matthew, you, you kind of you see a lot of the, what he's saying corresponds to like, oh, yeah, somebody came and destroyed a city. You know, he's saying, hey, you know, leave the city, get out. <laughs> get out before it's too late and, and don't take much with you and all these things. And, and ho hopefully you're not pregnant at the time and all these things. And um, so that's what he's saying. But um, uh, Cantor Alexander, uh, how, do, how do you, when you look at this parable through um, the lens of uh, the Jewish tradition, what kind of stands out for you in this parable? 
Well, so what stood out about the specific words are the heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away because that feels um, significantly different to how the Jewish prophets speak about God's coming punishment, which is very much, um, you know, in the Isaiah or Jeremiah tradition is very much of this will happen to you, you will be punished, but not that all of heaven and earth. And there's usually a remnant peoplehood who are going to be left to inherit whatever the good part that's left will be. So this notion um, that heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away seems somewhat different than um, how the Hebrew Testaments work. Um, but the par the parts of Matthew leading up to this specific parable, I think really reminded me of the book of Lamentations, for example, which is written as the Jews are in exile from the destruction of the first temple. And it speaks about the women who have to, who basically eat their own born because there is no food. There's such starvation. And woe to anybody who is pregnant and is Jerusalem is a barren land and um, the the horrific nature of having been in exile in that first setting I think is very much reminiscent of the projections that is what the the when you see all these things what the these things that are described in the chapter beforehand are emulating mm, mm, good yeah, and are there is there a certain um, uh, are there kind of markers in the Hebrew scriptures or the Talmudic traditions uh, that followed that uh, may talk about like um, you know, reading the signs or you know signs of things to come or how you would interpret? Uh, I mean, of course, I mean Judaism looks to a Messiah or a Messianic age or what have you and things like that. Are there ways that um, the Judaism speaks specifically about how you tell when the times are ripe for? something happening in the future? Or? So there definitely are stories um, about kind of, I guess, things that would be heralds of the Messiah. We sing every Havdalah, every Saturday evening, Eliyahu Hanavi, Eliyahu Hatishbi, um, Bimhera Ve'amenu, that Elijah the prophet will hearken the coming of the Messiah. And we sing this song every time that we end Shabbat and begin the rest of the week. We sing it um, at our Seder, at, at Passover. So the, the notion of there being stories about the Messiah or stories about a Messianic age is certainly an integral part of Jewish tradition. But in my um, modern liberal theology, I do not look for a personalized Messiah. Mm -hmm. And um, and I would I would say we we are really looking for human beings to be um, in partnership with God to bring about a messianic time. And by that, I don't even necessarily mean something different than what exists now, as much as I mean that the words that describe what a messianic time will be, the lion will lie down with the lamb. All human beings will have enough food to eat. There will be, you will turn your swords into plowshares, mm -hmm. right? That these these imagery that there will be no need for war and conflict, that we will all just get along, that is what I see as a messianic age that we have to work in partnership with God to create. So there are traditions of seeking um, a human being to be a messiah. There are traditions of 
this will happen or this will happen. But most of the times in Jewish history that people have thought they saw the signs, mm -hmm. they were incorrect. Mm -hmm. And it has led to not particularly good things happening in Jewish history. <laughs> yeah, as, as we were conversing over, over earlier, you were mentioning how every time a Messiah ri rises uh, or claims to arise, Jews get killed, right? <laughs> <laughs> every time a false Messiah false arises. Messiah, right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, good. Um, I mean, not good, that. <laughs> I mean, edit that part out. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, so, and the, yeah, the, hev the heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away is kind of curious there. Um, and, and I had really noticed that until you brought that, you know, that part about it. I was thinking it's more like in, uh, like Isaiah, where he says, you know, the, the all flesh is grass, you know, but the word of the Lord stands forever, that kind of thing, where um, there's a lot of temporary things, um, I mean, mortality and so forth, but but God's word doesn't stand. I mean, stands forever. But um, in this context, it's a little different, as as you um, rightly point out. I, I kind of wonder if perhaps what's going on here is he's getting pushback. He's naming some pretty dramatic things that are happening, um, and he's saying, "Oh my gosh, you know, can we avoid this? Maybe, maybe." And and he's saying, "Well, maybe not. I don't know. That's interesting." Uh, Imam Jamal, what do you make of this passage? In, from your... Well, this is a parable that uh, allows us, as all other parables, whether from Jesus or others, but here Jesus is referring to the fig tree to be the blessed holy kind of one. Mm. Uh, not literally, but reflecting on the fig tree that requires lots of uh, uh, care mm -hmm. and lots of patience mm -hmm. to give the fruit. Uh, which means that the word of God, whether it is delivered or received by people, whether it is delivered by Jesus, peace be upon him, Prophet Jesus, and those who are uh, working on his footsteps, or whether the receivers, they would need to be patient and to give care to those words and those teachings, those commandments, until the twigs, which is the fruit of that tree, of these words, of these teachings, will get tender and the leaves come uh, out. Leaves come out meaning start witnessing the result and the fruit mm. uh, uh, of, of this tree. Now, when this happened, you know that the summer is near and summer is the time for the harvest. Mm -hmm. Summer is the time for the relief. Summer is the time for the exit, for lots of good things to happen. Mm -hmm. So by giving the proper care, by being patient, by caring and providing and cultivating and trimming and uh, 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 irrigating and doing all the care for those teaching and those wars, definitely those wars are going to come at the end and be fruitful and give their fruit, and we will be witnessing that. It could be as close as at the uh, front door waiting really to happen. And uh, then he is confirming that I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Mm. Meaning that uh, you are listening and hearing these words and teachings and commandments. You will be going through hardships, mm -hmm. you will be going through some struggle mm -hmm. until the tree comes up and the fruit 
comes to be tender and start giving the result. Mm -hmm. But what I will be confirming to you that even if these hardships and struggles and uh, persecution maybe, as we know that the early um, generation of the Christians have been persecuted harshly by the Romans, mm -hmm. even if this happened and you think it is the doom day that we are dying and our homes are destroyed, mm -hmm. yet your actions, your sincerity, your devotion, your intention will survive and will be so much kept and saved and blessed because they are connected with the divine. That's interesting. That that That's another kind of interesting nuance I, that I... I now kind of seeing in that last verse that heaven and earth will pass away, my words will never pass away. Maybe he's really talking about not the, the words of prediction that will never pass away, but really just the words of teaching, like love your enemies, do the good to those who hate you, pray for those who persecute you, all these things. You know, even if even if the fall of Jerusalem happens, you don't you don't quit loving your enemies, doing good. Yes. And he's he's saying, don't join that. You keep stay the course on what you've been taught, maybe. These points and and things that he was talking about all these things the plus and the minus the good and the bad that's going to happen um, the good one is not going to vanish because it's connected to God mm -hmm. the bad one whether it is as huge and vast as the heavens and the earth which is a materialistic stuff is going to vanish but mm -hmm. what is connected to God as an action words intention will survive and stay with you and with him and with any next generation that is coming. Mm -hmm. So don't panic and don't fear. Yeah, that makes sense. I can't help but read this as a modern reader. I mean, look at parallels, I mean, kind of patterns set up in the scriptures, anywhere in the scripture, but in this one I look at and say, well, how do, do I see any of this happening today? And um, what this, what I can't help but think about is, I mean, if you look at the pattern, like Jesus is sensing t signs of the times, I don't think he he had to be omniscient or or what have you to to make these predictions. I think that um, he just noticed a lot. He was very mindful and and he could notice the energies that were going through the society and these kind of these kind of intermittent growing calls for revolt, armed revolt, and you know and so forth. The zealot movement. I think he was very very concerned about the zealot movement. I, um, in contrast to my uh, uh, somebody I. Deeply admire Reza Aslan. I, I do not think Jesus was a, a zealot. He wrote a book about Jesus being a zealot. It's like, no, this is actually the opposite message he had. He was not a zealot. He was deeply concerned about zealotry um, and, and the calls to rise up against Rome and seeing messianic figures who were going to lead people into revolt. And and so he said, you know, the, here's here's the end of this. This is where this is going to lead. And when I think about today, I think about um, how we can look out at our at our society and see our behaviors about how we treat the earth and its ecosystems and and not just about the earth and its ecosystems how we can live with high amounts of greed and entitlement um, that, that would lead us to consume massive amounts of resources that put carbon in the air and put now the whole earth at risk of spinning out of out of ever escalating carbon um, you know caused warming um, and and you, you don't have to be brilliant to look at this and say, you know, this is not leading to a good place. And so um, it, it seems to me like, like the earth itself is providing, it's like the fig tree. Uh, you know, now it's the earth itself is providing the signs of a time to say, hey, um, wake up. Uh, it's not too late, but um, the time is upon us um, 
<laughs> to get into action. Um, and, and maybe we could be smarter than, than, the, than the zealots of old, and, and maybe we could actually heed what the earth is telling us. If I may be allowed, uh, before I spoke about shedding lights with different lenses, so we can speak about this parable in a historical mm -hmm. background, economic background, social background. Mm -hmm. And even right now, I can see the hints and the figures where Jesus, peace be upon him, was referring to the earth, mm -hmm. to the environment. Right, yes. Yeah. The tree, the twigs, the heavens and earth, um, as if he is telling us and 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 directing us more and more to connect and take care of the environment around us mm -hmm. by giving that kind of example because we live in that environment and we are like the children of this environment. We are so much dipped into it. Um, and even if we see some destruction of that environment, which might be caused by the human being, mm -hmm. uh, still the good work that is connected with God will help to survive and sustain that environment. I feel that mm -hmm. here, the good action of taking care of the fig tree in order to harvest the twigs and, and, and the fruit mm -hmm. and the, uh, 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 the bad action here is uh, compared to the destruction of the heavens and earth versus the word of God or the good actions related to God that will survive. So we have the choice of taking either path. And if it happened, destruction of heavens and earth, then we are not honoring the word of God and his commandments. Mm -hmm. mm. Right, yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. I, it kind of reminds me of that Jewish saying, and I think there, you know, there's a parallel in Islam about the if you are planting a tree and you see you're told the Messiah is coming, don't put down the tree continue to plant the tree. It's like we still have to do the work. Yes. what I'm hearing you say. Uh, it is an attitude, you know, yeah. within yourself. It is the continuous, permanent kind of attitude to be positive, constructive, even if it is the last breath mm -hmm. that you are going to take. Yeah. And I think that you keep doing the work, like if the Messiah is here, awesome, amazing. Maybe we don't need this tree. But if I'm wrong... That's right. <laughs> Not to say that you're hedging your bets, but you're, you know, with experience, yeah. you're a little hedging your bets and you want to make sure that the next generation has plenty of trees in case you were mistaken. Maybe being humble. This, this confirms. <laughs> humility. Yeah. Yeah. The last sentence confirmed uh, what Eric just said, uh, the, the parable that is in, in, uh, in Islam, which is we don't work and act based on are we going to see or catch the fruit or not, mm. harvest the fruit. Mm. We work and act, as they said, the generation before us planted so we can enjoy the fruit and we are planting for the next, even if you are not sure that there will be next. Never stop doing mm -hmm. the good and right thing. Yeah. 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 Well, maybe too that, I mean, if you were applied this to climate change and so forth, I mean, the I just think there's, well, there's already, quite a lot of anger uh, floating around about the climate change issue and, and our inability to act and so forth. I feel that anger myself is, and that urgency, but I think those words remind me 
but it's still about love your enemy, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who persecute you, and, and all, all those things, just because even the heaven and earth may pass away, literally, <laughs> in, on, on some respect, um, it, it does not mean that those things are erased, those deep principles of, of love and grace uh, still need to be in effect, and, and maybe we need to then um, uh, be fighting with those quote-unquote weapons uh, that rather than just just simply the the hatred and the scapegoating that that goes on about that I mean I'm, always, I'm kind of impressed actually by the fact that you know there's a lot of like blaming like the big corporations and and the big oil companies and so forth and of course they played a, quite a role in climate change and climate change to denial and so forth but basically if if just those of us who are already convinced that, that climate change is a problem and could lead to this nearly a millennium of the Earth's climate being out of whack, if just those of us who are already convinced actually would prioritize action for the climate to the extent that it needs to be prioritized, then we would probably be able to solve climate change just with the people who are already on board with that. So to me, it's kind of a reminder, like, don't be so angry at those who you think are causing this. Like, look inward and look at, okay, ask, well, what, are, what am I doing about it, and and what about all of us who are already on the quote unquote right side <laughs> doing about it? Yeah, good. There's a, um, I'm reminded too, uh, Joanna. There's about Ecclesiastes. I I, I kind of hear her going in the back of my mind that song that was based on Ecclesiastes three, the for every time season turn, 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 <laughs> there is a season. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, yeah. About the kind of the seasonality of life, um, seems like the Judaism has a a really deep appreciation of the seasonality of just the year itself, but also the seasonality of you know whole, whole, almost eras or uh, times. There's uh, yeah, well, I think that I mean the Jewish calendar is is seasonal, so we celebrate our holidays based on the moon, but we adjust our calendar to make sure that we never wind up off season. So mm -hmm. the harvest holidays are in the fall mm -hmm. and the spring, and they're never in the middle of summer or the winter because mm -hmm. there is no harvest at that time of year. Um, and so, so we live in this adjustment based on the moon and the sun together. And I feel that um, having been a faith that has been around for so long, that has a very long view of history, it may be narrow in that it's very Jewish focused, mm -hmm. but it's still a long view of history that we do see the cycles. We've seen the, the high points when, when Jews have been fully integrated into the political machinations of communities. And we see the low points when Jews have been the base of the earth and, and destroyed by the political communities around them. Um, so there is for sure an honoring of the cyclical nature of humanity. But I think that in terms of when we when we're looking at climate change, there is almost a danger in viewing viewing it as part of a natural cycle, mm. um, because if we don't recognize that human beings are involved in the cycle that we're currently in, then we will not make the choice that human beings can be involved in ending the cycle that we're currently in, mm. in order to to save the earth that we are all living from. Now, the earth will survive, mm -hmm. right? There, there were sure. ice ages, there Maybe were better. not ice ages. <laughs> the earth will survive, but like, you know, dinosaurs roamed the world for, um, I think, like 
200 million years. Humans have only been around for about 200,000 years. Mm -hmm. And it'd be nice to think that the we as a species could <laughs> could make it a little bit longer. That's right. Um, so I don't know. I I am reminded in this parable and and what we were speaking about about zealotry and and the time period that Jesus is coming from and and all of the various versions of Judaism and of belief systems that existed in his time period of the reasons, the lessons that the rabbis teach about the destruction of the second temple. So in 70, when the when the temple was destroyed by the Romans and the and Jerusalem was sacked and so many Jews were exiled and killed, the rabbis had to figure out not only why did this happen, because it was clear that it wasn't the same reasons that the first temple had been destroyed 500 years beforehand, but they had to figure out what is Judaism look like now that we can't have a sacrificial relationship with God. And they said that the reason that the temple was destroyed was what they called sinat chinam, the baseless hatred. So what is what is baseless hatred? It's not, I hate you just because you're you. It's, it's not, I hate you for no reason. It's this righteous indignation that mm. I am so right and you are so wrong that you are worth killing over. Mm. And I think when we mix that notion that is what our rabbis bring to how this could have happened, mm -hmm. and we mix that with the teachings that you've highlighted of Jesus of, you know, love your enemy, we can see that without the humility to understand that even when we are righteous and even when we truly believe that we are correct and somebody else is wrong, if we don't have the humility to see their humanity, to see that those other people are also created in the image of God and loved by God and part of God's world, we will only have hatred in our heart for them. Mm. And that is baseless hatred. That's sinat chinam. And that right. will destroy the world that we live in. Yeah. And that recognition that we're all created by God is part of that deep Jewish insight that we're created in the image and likeness of, of God there. So, yeah. It's interesting that you bring up this that kind of self-righteous indignation as being such a primary mover in that. I, as soon as you said that, I was reminded of what one of the things I appreciate most about the Quran is its identification, as I interpret it anyway, and, and Mom, Jamal, you can always step in and correct me, uh, but the story of Iblis or Satan um, in, in the Quran is a, really a story about, which I think is um, meant to tell us that the root of all evil is self-righteous indignation because it's mm -hmm. a little different than a Christian story. Like, like uh, I mean, there's there's a Christian story about like Satan, what kind of the origin of Satan. It's not in the Bible. It's from an extra biblical tradition that like uh, God asks the angels to bow down to God and everybody did except Satan. And so Satan gets thrown out of heaven. That's the Christian mythology. I'm not claiming that's a historical <laughs> incident, anything, but that's the mythology of Satan. But it's meant to teach us certain things. But the the Quran says that in the in the beginning, when God created humanity and so forth, Adam, Adam, yeah, that um, that God asked the the angels and all the host of heaven to bow down to humanity, and the angels were like, "What? These people are imperfect. They'll commit all kinds of problems and murder and stuff." And and then God says, uh, "Well, I know things you don't," and they're like, "Oh, we're good with that," and they all bow down except Iblis. Yeah who objects because he says, I'm made of smokeless fire. I'm of higher stuff. And he really was. That's in reality, he was higher stuff than us. So he's not going to bow down. And that's, 
and that's, I think, to me, that what I hear in that is this self-righteous indignation. Like, I am literally better than them. Why would I bow down to them, even if you made them, right? The first vice in heaven before Adam came on earth was the I, the jealous, the ego. Mm. That I am better than him. I was created from fire. He is created from clay. And in his definition, fire is stronger and better than the clay. You know, and that's why he was condemned and sentenced to hellfire uh, because he rejected the commands of God. Because the prostration wasn't prostration of worship. It was prostration of respect to the creation, to that gift of God that he created. Mm. Mm. Powerful stuff, self-righteous indignation. Absolutely. <laughs> it keeps you burning all the time. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. It's reminded of a, a quote I just read somebody, one of our youth passed along to me for our youth worship service recently. Um, he was to put it up on the screen, like, it's okay to judge me. Just make sure you're perfect for the rest of your life. <laughs> so that's why we call it the destructive I, you know, yeah. uh, especially for the... I Sufi. as in me or I as in what you no, see. No, with. I as in me. Yeah. I am rather than we or I rather than you. Mm -hmm. When you stick and so much intoxicated by the I... That's exactly what will ha what happened to uh, devil. It will happen to you in the world and in the hereafter. Mm. Uh, the eye that that's why all the Sufis work on demolishing and erasing the eye mm. in their relationship with God. Mm. And they call him. They say, between me and you, the eye that can block and prevent me from seeing and getting to. You. So by your majesty, please help me remove and erase that eye from mm. me. Oh, it's beautiful. It's like there's that saying, the eyes have it. Well, no, in this case, <laughs> the eyes lose it. It's the we's that keep it. Well, yeah. I, uh, on that note, uh, we need to uh, bring this to a close. It's been a very enjoyable conversation. And uh, I'm looking forward to our, our last one. We'll be also talking about another parable of a fig tree. But um, you brought up kind of the, the relationship with nature and so forth. Uh, you were observing that Jesus was observing nature and that the, all these parables have had something to do with nature, that Jesus seems to have looked to nature as uh, an indicator of the way God works in the world. And, and pulls as he's contemplating nature itself and the way it's working, he's finding all kinds of analogy to that which can't be seen. And so you've, you've definitely helped me um, see some things I wasn't seeing in this parable. Thank you both uh, for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. See you next time. Convergent Paths. Convergent Paths. Convergent Paths.